The next patient is a 57-year-old female who had originally noted that she had passed some blood per rectum. She underwent a workup and was found to have a sigmoid colon lesion. At surgery, she had a T3N1 tumor. She was seen for a follow-up discussion of treatment, and I discussed with her the fact that she did have a single node involved, but she had seven nodes assessed, and that those two factors together I thought were significant enough that she should strongly consider taking adjuvant therapy. She agreed. She received full FOX, tolerated that remarkably well. So she had full FOX chemotherapy. She tolerated it remarkably well. She had some difficulties initially with the nausea that was controlled pretty easily, actually, and some fatigue and constipation. But all in all, we didn't have to attenuate her course of treatment at all. She had some complaints of minimal neuropathy. She's seen follow-up today. She had a one-year follow-up colonoscopy just recently. That's negative. Her laboratory data is all within normal limits, and she had a CAT scan within the last week, and that's entirely normal as well. What's your usual follow-up plan, Phil, in patients like this? So I'll see her now for at least the next couple of years. I'll be seeing her at three- to six-month intervals, perhaps spreading it out to six months after three or four years, seeing her for a minimum of five years. But this is actually something that Dan and I talked about, that we just find that there's so many people that want to continue keeping follow-up even beyond that five-year period, which I'm fine with, and I think it makes some sense in that some people are going to have those late recurrences. She'll have a CAT scan annually, at least for the next three years, and she'll have a colonoscopy. Well, she had one now, and she'll have another one at year three and year five. So, Dan, what would you say about the guidelines to this kind of issue? Well, the ASCO guidelines still call for CTs only during the first three years, but that only accounts for about 70% of all the recurrences, and it may be even less than that in people who have stage 2 disease. So I think with the data that was presented from the ACCENT database about the timing of relapses, about the fact that the Mosaic trial needed six years to show a survival advantage, makes me think that we might need to pursue surveillance for a bit longer in these patients. So a couple sort of related issues to the adjuvant scenario. The first, I'm just kind of curious what you two think about the issue of potentially of diet and exercise modifying the risk of recurrence and whether or not you think those kinds of discussions you know, are appropriate in a patient like this. Phil, or did you talk to her about that by any chance? Yeah, that became actually one of the primary focus points of the visit. We talked about exercise, and it turned out, I didn't know this, but it turned out that several years ago she had been running up to seven miles a day. So she was completely receptive to the idea of getting back to the exercise. She weighed about 25 pounds less at that time than she does now. Now, when did she stop the exercise? It was a few years ago, several years ago, I guess. Dan? I thought it was really important that Phil bring this up because the way we phrased this and couched it was that frequently people want to know what they can do to keep their cancer from coming back or developing a new one, but it more often comes out in the guise of a pill or a magic medicine. And we were saying these are things that patients can do for themselves. Less smoking, less alcohol, more diet, more exercise, keep your insulin resistance down. And she was actually very positive about very that. Positive. She really thought that she wanted to be included in her own health care. And we also talked a little bit about vitamin D, and she was receptive to that as well. 
Dan, as editor of the journal Clinical Oncology, obviously you've been publishing a lot of this stuff, not just in colon cancer, but also in breast cancer and other tumors. How do you think this is going to play out when we finally figure out the answer? Do you think that actual cancer recurrence maybe is going to be affected by these factors? It certainly looks that way in breast cancer. The work by Pam Goodwin and others has really been very strong in that direction. And in fact, the National Cancer Institute of Canada is considering doing a metformin adjuvant trial in breast cancer to reduce insulin resistance and the effect of high levels of insulin on tumor growth and development. I think there's a nice story going on here. And certainly with a third of all Americans being obese and another third being overweight, this is a message that needs to get home to cancer survivors. Anything that you've heard either in colon or breast cancer about mechanisms? When I talked to Rowan Chablowski and Jeff Meyerhart, who did the colon work, they talk a lot about insulin growth factor, although I'm not quite sure how it's tied in exactly. Any pathways that seem like may be affected here? I think that's the chief one that has been proposed. There's a nice editorial just in the past month by Pam Goodwin from Toronto on this area. And it certainly seems like it closes the circle with some of the new ILGF receptor antagonist drugs and some other biologics. One of the things that's been raised, Phil, you might have even heard people talk about on our programs. I can remember Eric Weiner being one was the question of if you say to a patient, maybe if you can eat a little less fat, lose a little weight, or keep your weight down, or whatever you want to say to them, and then they turn out and have a cancer recurrence, they might blame themselves. Any thoughts about that kind of thinking? Well, I think that's all taken within the context of the patient you're dealing with. And the patient we were dealing with right now is completely receptive to it. And she's previously bought into the whole health lifestyle thing. And when I talked to her about metabolic equivalent tasks and working out five or so days a week, she was completely fine with it and actually kind of wanted to continue that conversation. So I think if she had come in and she weighed 200, 300 pounds, I'd probably approach it a little differently. Right. So we've talked about adjuvant therapy. I've got to ask Dan for his take on the presentation of the year, as far as I'm concerned, the NSABP weight study. But first, I have to ask you, Phil, did you go to ASCO this year? Yeah, yeah. Did you happen to see that presentation that Norm Walmart did? I saw it at your Monday night program. Right. Yeah, Dan, we actually had a meeting the night after, and Norm came over, represented everything. We had actually colon investigators, lung, and breast all on the same podium, and we actually spent 70 minutes, 7-0, talking about CO8. It was hard to believe, and people were, like, riveted. Anyhow, bottom line, what was reported, and what did you think about it? Well, the CO8 trial was a comparison of Folfox to Folfox bevacizumab, the latter being given for six additional months after Folfox was complete to high-risk stage two and stage three patients. I don't like to see negative trials, quite frankly, but this one was clearly a negative trial, and I thought Lee Ellis's discussion of it was right on the mark. I think the two presentations need to be balanced one against each other. I think in my own head, even though I don't like negative trials, Phil said he heard me at one of your gigs, and I made a comment about I thought it was going to be a negative trial because BEV is a cytostatic agent. There's no tumor permeability. Angiogenesis isn't involved. So I was happy to see Lee Ellis get up and use those same arguments to retrofit the data. So, Phil, of course, the issue there was that in the first year, while they were getting treatment, they had 40% fewer recurrences. And eventually, just as they hit three years, it became not significant. So from my point of view, it wasn't, I mean, I can understand maybe you don't want to look at bevacizumab again or whatever, but just biologically, 
It didn't look like a flat negative trial to me. Well, I think it generated hypotheses. I think it's negative from the standpoint of what you do with it. So, for example, if there was 60% at the end of the 12 months, what was it going to be at two years or three years or four? How much is enough? And how much cost are you going to spend for the extra two or three percent? So I think there were legitimate issues raised on both sides, and I was certainly glad to hear Norman present some hypothesis generation. Maybe we'll move towards a situation where we'll have a VEGF TKI or something that'll be a lot easier to take for three. I mean, Phil, we're used to giving adjuvant hormonal therapy and breast cancer for, you know, 10 years. Right. So it's not a new concept. Right. Well, anyhow, you can argue with me about that. But I thought it was when I first heard about the trial being, quote, negative, I was like, oh, this is terrible for research, but now I'm not so sure there's not a clue there. Well, it's also not the last word on the topic because the Avant trial is probably going to be ready for analysis next year, and we have to make a decision about what we do with E5202, the stage two study, to see whether we keep the bevacizumab arm open or just make it an assignment trial. 